G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast episode 27 and today we are joined by IARM adult Emma from Queensland, Australia who's 47 years old. G'day Emma. Hey Greg, how are you? Very good, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about your journey through your life and all the health challenges you've had as a child adult and more recently as well can you tell us about a project you've done for a book about it's called it's about us can you just give us a bit of a rundown on what that is and then we'll get you to read some passages yeah well uh, unfortunately i've got had cancer i've got cancer it's got a treatable it's treatable not curable one which we'll get to and on that journey so many little charity things come up and one that came up was this It's About Us. It's based in Sydney. And she helps people write their story in a photo book. So this lady started this charity where she helps people as a healing thing write their journey or, you know, how they felt about their cancer diagnosis and what art into a story with photos for them to keep for their families and as a memento. But of course, I couldn't just do my cancer story without doing the whole story because I think it's all relevant. It absolutely is. It's, it's a beautiful story to listen to. And I'm going to get you to read some of the passages from the story and then uh, we'll have a bit of a discussion about it. All right. So start from the beginning. Oh, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, it's about the early days. I was born with multiple congenital abnormalities. As an adult, I found these gout, these come under the banner of bacterial association, vertebral, anal, cardiac, tracheal, esophagus, renal, limb. To qualify, you need three of these. I have all but limb issues. Unfortunately, obstetric ultrasound was not around back then. So finding all these issues happened over many months. I was born at Nambour Hospital on the 8th of October, 1974. My parents were excited about their first baby. Dad tells me he was happy to hear I had 10 fingers and 10 toes. That's where the good news ended. When the doctor put the tube down to suck the meconium out of my stomach, it came straight back up. Uh-oh. Off to Brisbane, I was sent to the Royal Children's Hospital. I was so fortunate that an excellent surgeon was on call that night, Dr McGuckin. Dr McGuckin would be my doctor until my early 20s. I was so lucky to have him on my case. On arrival at the RCH, I was found to have no anus. I also had a rectovaginal fistula, so no colostomy was made at that time. As for the esophagus, I had a short upper esophagus with a fistula to the trachea. The lower esophagus from the stomach had a fistula to the carina, where the trachea branches into the left and right. The distance between the upper and lower was too long to join. So I had surgery to create a cervical esophagostomy and gastrostomy. I was fed from the gastrostomy until May 1976. Further investigations found a few other issues over the next few months. In November, they found a parasternal murmur 
and associated tachycardia. I was sent to Prince Charles Hospital, which is a known cardiac hospital. Here they performed cardiac catheter studies to find out how to ventricular septal defect. Initially, I was treated with anti-CCF medication and treated conservatively. My initial stay at Prince Charles lasted two months. As a teenager, I was told by my doctor that the other doctors told him he was wasting his time on me. During one admissions at Prince Charles, I became febrile and ill and had developed a urinary tract infection. Investigation of this with an IVP x-ray found my left kidney and ureter to be quite dilated. Further imaging found the ureter was refluxing, so a left ureteroscopy was performed at RCH. Recovering from this surgery, I developed heart and lung issues, so I was transferred back to PCH, where open heart surgery was performed to correct my VSD. Once my cardiac issues were corrected, the doctors created me an esophagus using a piece of my colon. This worked quite well, and they closed my gastrostomy a couple of months later. In the meantime, I had developed quite severe constipation due to the uncorrected anorectal malformation. This in turn caused dilatation of my rectum and sigmoid colon. So when my ureterostomy was closed, they performed a colostomy November 1976. The beginning of 1977 was the last time I'd see operating theatres for nearly eight years. Firstly, in January, I had the operation to reimplant my left ureter to stop the reflux of urine back to the kidney. This went well. Finally, in April, my colostomy was reversed and a bowel pull-through procedure was performed to create an anal opening. While this was a success, I didn't appear to have much muscle control. This would give me trouble for many years to come. Looking back and seeing just how sick I was as a baby, I am amazed I am still here today. Fortunately, I do not remember any of this. I can only imagine how my parents felt as new parents when they were thrown into the deep end. They definitely were, weren't they? With everything oh that God. you had to deal with. Incredible. And there was no, they didn't know anyone who had a kid like this. All of us adults, we feel the same way about what our parents oh. had to go through. Yeah. So now we'll go to the next part of your story. So the sham beds. So how did feeding with an esophagostomy and gastrostomy work? For almost the first two years of my life, I couldn't eat. I was fed through a gastrostomy tube. Back in the 70s, there were no formula feeds. My mum would blend up vegetables and meat, whatever they were eating, and put that in my tube. When being fed, I would sit in a baby bath. I also had an esophagostomy, so the same food that went into the gastrostomy tube, I would also eat through my mouth. That food would come out my neck at the esophagostomy. This gave me practice at swallowing, which was stopped when my stomach was full. This taught me that you stop when you are full. Jeez, I can't even imagine that. That's the equivalent of what they call a G-tube now, isn't it? Yes. I had a nasty big-looking tube where they get a little button. Now it's very cute. Oh, that's incredible, Emma. Absolutely incredible. Oh. 
after having eight years break from hospital, you ended up having to go back into hospital, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Surely did. So after a couple of years in and out of hospitals as a baby and toddler, I had a break with yearly doctor's appointments until I was 10 years of age. At this point, it was decided they needed to start concentrating on my gynecological issues. I started using dilators to help create the vagina. Unfortunately, I was not compliant with this and required some examinations under anaesthetic to properly assess what the situation was. I really didn't know about these issues until I was 10. And once it was explained to me why they needed to do all of this, I was not happy. The thought of periods didn't sound great and I really couldn't see a time when I would want to have sex. Ten year olds. <laughs> At the end of grade six, I had quite a serious urinary tract infection. Imaging testing found that the ureteric reflux I had returned and I was booked in to have the ureter re-implanted again just before school went back for grade seven. For me, this was the first surgery I really remember. I can remember being in pain in the ward after and asking why I had to have that done. Mum had to remind me just how sick I had been a couple of months ago and explained that this surgery should reduce the chance of that happening again. By the end of grade eight, it was time to start the surgery to construct a vagina. By this time, the Royal Children's Hospital in Brisbane had undergone redevelopment and I went to a brand new ward. The new ward had facilities for mum to stay overnight, which was excellent, especially for the first day or so after surgery when I was in the most pain. The initial plan was to use my bowel in the construction. So to make this easier on my bowel, I had a temporary colostomy made. During this admission, I was able to go to the hospital school. One day, we were kept down at school longer than usual. None of us kids knew why and started getting suspicious when our parents and other children that were ward-bound started coming down. After waiting for what felt like forever, we had a visit from Michael Jackson in the bad era. Wow. As a, I know. As a group, we had to sing him home among the gum trees, complete with actions. It was quite an exciting day and gave many sick children quite the lift in their spirits. And it got just remember one little boy had just been brought back to the ward from intensive care. He had a drip in his foot. He was still not really with it. And one of the nurses just whispered in his ears, Michael Jackson's here. And he sat bolt upright. Michael Jackson, they had to go find him a wheelchair with a leg thing because he had his drip in his foot and had to take him down. That's incredible, and, isn't it? And like he went from being just so flat to he bounced right back. Really? Just that one thing happening. It's amazing what, like, I don't think some of those celebrities really realise what the impact they have on some of the kids when they do visit. Yeah, yeah, no, nah, that's, that's a you wonderful know? story. And I just think, like people bag some of these celebrities, but the ones that actually do go out of their way to visit, 
It's a good gift they give. Just yeah. to hang up. That's, it lifts their spirits, doesn't it? Oh, so much. And anyway, back to the story. A couple of weeks later, I went back for the vaginal reconstruction. While they were operating, they investigated the state of my uterus and decided to stretch the small amount of vagina I had up to this. Over the next few weeks, I would have tests to see if this was successful. At one point, they stitched some tubing into my vagina. It would cause a lot of pain and discomfort. I remember being told that it shouldn't and to just get used to it. When the stitches came apart and the tubing fell out, I remember being mum being shocked with just how rough and sharp the edges were. By Easter 1988, I had developed severe abdominal pains. Surgery found a large infection in my pelvis, which appeared to come from the left fallopian tube. Further exploration of my uterus found it didn't connect to the fallopian tube or the vagina. I stayed in hospital that week with drainage tubes in. The week after, my colostomy was closed. In July that year, it was decided the best way forward for me was to go undergo a hysterectomy. This was a huge decision, but with limited chance of my uterus being functional, it was the best decision. The next few years were uneventful and allowed me to live a relatively normal teenage life. In grade 12, I had a small anaesthetic to pull my ears back. The doctors had always talked about wanting to do this and now they wanted to perform an examination while I was under anaesthetic. At 16 years of age, they felt they needed a better reason to put me under anaesthetic. So I asked if they could do the ears. Incredible. Like, you know, for what for what you've even you've read so far, what you have had to go through up until you're 16 years old is just yeah. amazing. And I can't even imagine how how it affected your parents at the time. Oh. And they didn't really have anyone to talk to, except for, you know, the specialist doctor and some of the nurses. No yeah. one else really understood what the hell was going on. At no. one point, I remember one of the nurses saying, do you think we should get a psychologist for her? And the surgeon goes, what's the point of that? We're still going to have to do it. No point talking about it. Just the way things work. That's right. And that's why we're so passionate about, from, oh. from the adult perspective, trying to get get their surgeons and the nurses and the medical community to understand their psychological impacts oh. our condition has on kids at such an early age, isn't it? Oh, big time. Big time. Let's talk about your childhood memories now. Yeah. I really love school and learning. Primary school was hard socially. I had a great friend called Scott in grade one, but sadly he moved in grade two to another school. With all my bowel problems, I would have quite a few accidents. Even though I tried my best to avoid these and clean up best I could, the other kids just didn't understand and I was the smelly kid who no one wanted to be friends with. I spent a large amount of time in the library reading and hiding from the bullies. It was hard not having good friends, but I felt lucky 
that I could go home to my family that loved me and accepted me. During primary school, I was involved in the recorder band, which I loved. Outside of school, mum and dad sent me to piano lessons. Over the years, I competed in a couple of the Stanfords, and while I only earned one highly commended award, I just enjoyed being part of something. They also helped set me to gymnastics to help with my coordination and balance. Moving to high school was exciting. A few of the smaller schools in the area fed into our school. So having new people to make friends with was so good. They didn't know me, so I could start afresh. I loved high school and got involved in the instrumental music program. I started off playing the clarinet before moving on to the flute. I continued with music, both as a subject and extracurricular throughout high school, and I loved it. I was in the school concert band and the orchestras for school musicals, and even played in a band for the arts festival on the coast. Academically, I did well and studied maths and science for senior with added music. My time in hospitals had guided me to pursue a career in healthcare, specifically radiography. At the end of high school, I did not quite get the TE school required to enter the radiography degree, so I accepted a place in a science degree. Was it four years at university? Yes, so it was one year of science and then three years of the radiography degree. And then with radiography, you get a provisional accreditation by a professional association. And then you had to do a uh, PDY, which is like an internship. And, but you get, that's a job. Yep. And then you get signed off at the end of that year and then you get full accreditation. So you can get a proper job. So I came back to the Sunshine Coast and worked at one of the private practices here. How's your career been from that perspective? had up and ups and downs so I really I didn't like working in the private practice so I'm definitely not a private practice working radiographer I prefer public system and how did you find dealing with your health issues at the time do you think working in the the hospital actually gave you that extra sense of security and comfort yeah, I did I I had no problems really at work most of the time, I was pretty good. Um, at Roma, I was probably, even when I lived at the opposite end of town, I was five minutes from the hospital if I needed to duck home. Yeah. <laughs> or I was living in the nurses' quarters. I didn't have too many problems out there. I think that was probably when my everything was under control the best. Right. I still had troubles, but I seemed to manage it the best when I was out there. I don't know whether that's just your early 20s and I don't know. And I, I suppose being in that environment would have gave you that comfort as well. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Yeah. After Roma, you, you went travelling around the world, didn't you? Well, while I was at Roma, I went travelling around the world. Did some backpacking. I really, really wanted to go to England and do the whole working for a couple of years in England but I just didn't feel safe to be over there for that long if something went wrong medically and I just went you know what no let's just go over for a couple of months see as much as I can see and come home. What you've proven so far is that 
all your health setbacks didn't stop you at all. No. Didn't stop you from working, didn't no. stop you from travelling. No, definitely not. That's so wonderful. Definitely not. It was great. Like I've still got some very good friends that I've met while travelling. They're all over the world too. So Yeah, that's no. fantastic. Now we'll get in on to how you and Jason became husband and wife. Yes, well, we've been friends for a long time. And I was back from Roma and working at the Royal Children's Hospital in Brisbane, which was probably the best job I've ever had. Don't tell my current boss. So we started hanging out again and catching up. And, and after a while, we just got together and, and part of us were like, you know, this has got to be real. If, you know, if like we're going to risk a friendship. And, yeah, so we've been now married for 15 years. Oh, that's so wonderful. And was he aware of your health issues? Yes, before we got together. Oh, that must have made it a lot more comfortable for you to know it, that. It made me feel a lot more comfortable because I figured if he wasn't okay with it, we wouldn't have got together. So when did you get married? 2006. After you got married, you can you then tell us about your beautiful daughter, Annie? Yeah, so obviously having the hysterectomy at the age of 13, I can't have biological children of my own. And back when we got married, the whole surrogacy thing wasn't a thing in Australia at all. So right. that wasn't even ever going to be in the plans. So it was an optional bust, really, for us. And in Queensland at the time, you had to be married for two years before you could even apply. Really? So we got married in the August. So June 2008, there was like an information evening in Brisbane for adoption. And we went down there and they're like, oh, but you haven't been married for two years. And we're like, yes, but we know this is our plan. So if I wait till the next information evening, it's after we've been married for two years. Let's do it now. And then we've got all the paperwork. And as soon as we've been married for two years, we'll be submitting some information. And when we got down there, we initially thought, well, we're going to be adopting from China or Korea. Like, no one ever adopts from Australia, do they? And um, the lady down there said, just... Don't be surprised if you hear from the local adoption people before you hear from the overseas. Really? And I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah. And just talking to her, I'm like, you know, I've got quite a big health history. I said, I'm really concerned. I'm going to submit this. You guys are just going to open it up and go, oh, my gosh, no way. See you later. And she said, if we did that, we'd lose our jobs. Our main concern is that your health is not going to impact you long-term and you can provide a stable long-term home for a child. If all the stuff you've had in the past is in the past and it's actually not going to be life-limiting, then we can't knock you on that. So I'm like, okay, cool. That must have gave you a lot of comfort. 
you did. So I'm like, okay, that's good. Because one, one of my friends told me, just don't tell them too much about that. And I'm like, you know what? No, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to be honest. And if it's meant to be, then it'll be meant to be. So. And it was meant to be. Yes, everything we sent into the adoption that Queensland came back like that, every time, like came back every couple of weeks, we'd send something in, a couple of weeks later we'd get a reply. So you, you do your education to learn about adoption. You have to do a family profile of like they want, there's not much people in adoption department don't want to know about you. Yep. And you fill all that in. And then in December, we've got October, by the end of October 2009, we were finishing our home, uh, home study. So that social worker comes in four or five times and she's here for hours going through everything. And she sent us her, her draft report just so you can, like, check that there's no big errors there that she's messed up. And then Christmas Eve 2009, Jason gets a call and he rings me at work and goes, I just got a call. We're on the register. Oh, wow. Boss. And I said, we're on the adoption register. He goes, wow. He goes, how long do you reckon before you're going to get to I said, we're not going to hear anything for 12 months. No way. So that was then. And then when she rang, she said, look, can you guys call me after Christmas, New Year, because we have Shui shut down now, and we've got to make an appointment to see you in the New Year to go through your placement considerations, what health conditions, social conditions, whatever you would accept. I'm like, right, you So I rang him up and made an appointment for the February. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I get this phone call. Oh, the boss wants me to see you guys this week, if we can, to go through this placement considerations form because the legislation's changing on the 1st of February. I'm like, okay, no worries. So bit of toing and froing with phone calls and we ended up meeting them halfway between the coast and Brisbane and went through a whole heap of stuff with them. And the last thing she said, are you guys ready for this? Well, yeah. And I call you on Monday, are you ready for this? And I'm like, yeah. And we walk out and I, you reckon something's going on? <laughs> something's going on. Because... Monday, I had the day off. Shift workers working on the weekends, so I put Monday off instead. And Jason came home for lunch, which is unusual, but that just coincidence. And he left for lunch. I went to the bathroom and I didn't hear my phone ring. And next thing, he's coming in the house phone. The house phone's going to ring. The house phone's going to ring. So the house phone rang and they said, have you got plans for this afternoon? And I went, oh, no, nothing that can be changed can't be changed and um because they wanted to come and discuss a nine-month-old baby girl oh wow so and of course you don't like that's all they tell me on the phone nine-month-old baby girl and the only other thing they said was there'll be travel 
Anyway, she turns up and the last thing they ever show you is the photo, the baby picture with these big blue eyes. Oh, wow. Like, how can you say no to that? <laughs> and that's the reason they don't show you the photo first. Because she yeah. said if you show people a photo, they don't hear a single thing after that. So that Tuesday was literally walking into baby shops and going, we'll have cots, high chairs, a lot in one fell sweep. And uh, flew to Mackay on Sunday, met her on the Monday and we're home on the Wednesday. That's incredible. And how old's Annie now? She's 12 and much bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, in her second year of high school. That's amazing. What a beautiful story. If you want to talk about your next lot of medical hurdles when you're around 26, 27 years old. Yep. So once I settled into my job at the Royal Children's Hospital, my bowel incontinence was getting harder to hide and ignore. My friend and longtime advocate, Sandy, still worked at the Royal Children's Hospital in the day procedure unit. And she managed to get the appointment with Dr. Stitz at the Wesley Hospital. At that time, he was no longer taking new patients. So I was lucky to have Sandy on my side. He presented me with a few options, including a permanent colostomy. I decided to go with a dynamic gracilloplasty. This involved detaching the gracillus muscle from the knee and wrapping around the anus. He then attached pacing wires and a pacemaker to this. Over a couple of months, we retrained the muscle so it could be turned on for control and off when I needed to go to the toilet. This gracilloplasty lasted for almost nine years and made life much easier for me. However, by 2012, it no longer worked and I was presented with new solutions. Dr. Stitz had retired from operating and sent me to a new surgeon, Dr. Lutton. He, this time, I decided to go with permanent colostomy. Many people who didn't really know how much trouble I was having thought I was being dramatic. I guess that shows how well I did at hiding my issues. On the 2nd of November 2012, I had my permanent colostomy and at the same time, my rectum was removed and closed up. This was the best decision I have made for my health. And it gave me a feeling of control that I never had before. I still have had a few bowel obstructions, one that needed surgical intervention. More recently, I developed a parasternal stomal hernia, which also created some obstructions. This was revised in August 2020. As for my esophagus, I never had a problem with this until just before my 30th birthday. After a large meal one evening, I ended up having to sit up all night with pain in my chest. Following this, I was unable to tolerate solid food. My GP at the time sent me for a barium swallow, which showed a stricture. So I was sent to a gastroenterologist for an endoscopy. He found no stricture, but the lower colon esophagus was full of food. Once I convinced him that I hadn't eaten since 6 p.m. the previous evening, it was decided I needed someone with more experience. I was now in the very capable hands of Professor David Podlin. I was one of the first chronic 
into positions he had seen, and he took his time researching his surgical plan. On the 28th of June, 2004, I underwent a revision of my colonic interposition graft at the Mater Private Hospital. This was a large surgery requiring a thoracotomy and deflation of the left lung to access the graft. I spent just over a week in hospital, including a few days in the intensive care area. I was so glad the operation was a success. Unfortunately, the graft has given me a few brief a few more times and I have had to undergo similar surgeries another three times over the years. The last one was in 2019 at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. By this stage, Professor Gottlieb had retired from his private practice, but was still seeing patients publicly. I have word that he is now fully retired, so I'm not sure what I will do if I have issues with this again. Well, hopefully you won't. I don't, I don't know if that operate on me anymore. You and I know that Doctors play such an important part in our lives because we, we, we learn to trust them implicitly, don't we? Oh, for sure. And we need that, that sense of comfort. I keep on talking about comfort, but it comes up so many times in our lives. Yes. The adult doctors aren't over the paediatric issues and the paediatric doctors can't treat the adult patients. And it gets really quite tricky because I remember when I first started having problems with this over this, I was working at the children's hospital. And so I had my results from the endoscopy. I have my results from the barium swallow. And I knew I was going to see this Dr. Cotley, but I didn't know him. And Dr. Borsey was still at the children's hospital and he'd been my surgeon's registrar many, many times over the years. So I was like, I'm going to go and ask him if I'm on the right path or whether he knows other surgeons that I should be going to. Because, and one of our other radiographers was like, he's a paediatric surgeon. You can't go and see him. I'm not asking him to treat me. I'm asking if I'm going in the right direction. Fast forward to April 2020 and tell us what happened there. Just all went pear-shaped, didn't it? So on the 23rd of April, 2020, I was getting changed and simply kicked my shorts off with my right leg when I got a severe pain in my right hip. I couldn't even sit down. I got Jason to call the ambulance, who took me to the bedroom and hospital emergency department. After being there overnight, having an X-ray and an ultrasound, no reason could be found. I was sent home on crutches with a spray. What followed was many months of physiotherapy, which did not really help. I had a CT in June for a bowel obstruction. The question on my hip was asked at the time, but this returned with no bony abnormality. In July, I saw a neurosurgeon who suggested a bone scan. Considering I was booked for surgery to have a parastonal hernia repair in just over a week after this, he was happy for me to, to delay the scan. When I finally was able to book the scan, I asked my GP for a CT of the hip. So I booked them for the same day. A week out from the scans, and he had swimming trials to get into an aquatics program for high school. I stepped up, stepped down from a step awkwardly that day and felt a searing pain in the hip. 
between my walking stick and Annie, we got out to the car. It was suggested I get it looked at, but I'm booked for a scan next week. I'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) On the 9th of September, I went to have the scans done. First up was the CT. They moved me into the bone scan room. Then they moved me into the bone scan room. The tech said she just wanted to look at the CT before she started, which is pretty standard. Next minute, she came back to say I had a phone call. It was the GP, the radiologist who I work with at school, was also there, and he looked quite upset. I asked him what was going on. He said, I'm sorry, Emma, you have a lesion in your femur, and there is a fracture through that lesion, so don't stand up. They got me to a wheelchair, and I had a discussion with the radiologist on one side and my GP on the phone. Here I learned that there was quite a sizable lesion in my femur and it had been there in the previous CT in June. The radiologist decided it would be a good idea to put me back on the CT table and scan my chest and abdomen to see if there were any other lesions. On this, we found several more in my pelvic bone and vertebrae. My GP was trying to get hold of an orthopedic surgeon. With the news, that there was a bit more going on than a fractured femur. I suggested we could go across the road to school. This part, that's the public hospital. And they agreed this was the best move. At school, I was admitted to the oncology ward. Over the next few days, I had many blood tests, a bone marrow biopsy and a femoral nail inserted. By Wednesday, 16th of September, it was confirmed that I had multiple myeloma. Fortunately, my colleagues from the medical imaging department were able to call up to the ward visits, which kept my spirits up. After the first night, my daughter was not allowed to visit the oncology ward due to the COVID rules. The haematologist wanted to start my treatment as soon as possible. However, I was able to go home for a couple of weeks to recover from the hip surgery. Can you... Give us a brief description of multiple myeloma, if that's okay, Emma. I can. So it's a cancer of the plasma cells in the blood. And it can attack, those plasma cells help create the bone marrow. So in my case, it attacked the bones. It can also attack kidneys. Unfortunately, with all my kidney trouble, my kidneys have been okay. But in my case, it attacked that's cancer of plasma cells in the blood basically oh. and it can affect your immune system so my immune system isn't as good as it was anymore and I can be prone to infection so if I do get infections they need to be treated rather quickly. So what sort of treatment have you undergone for the cancer? So I had six rounds of chemo in the form of injections and tablets. And I had radiation therapy on the hip and pelvis to help with the bone pain. And then I had to have a stem cell transplant. And now I'm on maintenance medication. So the stem cell transplant, they harvested my own cells. So to do that, you had to, I had to have a big dose of chemo and then I had to have daily injections for about 10 days to stimulate the stem cells in the blood. And then they hook you up to a machine that 
takes your blood out and spins it, gets the stem cells out and then puts the rest of the blood back to you. First time didn't get enough cells, so I had to do that again a few months later. So it was just like, again, finally didn't get much cells the next time, but with the first lot, it was just enough for a transplant. And then for the transplant, they put in a Hickman's central line for the duration while you're hospitalised. And then the next day, they give you what they call a lethal dose of chemotherapy. And the next day, they give you back your stem cells. So basically, they wipe your entire system, give you stem cells to build it back up from the start. You are an unbelievably and remarkable person, Emma. Can I tell you, with all of this chemotherapy, I don't think I would have mentally got through it as well without the colostomy for me because it just gives you really, really bad gastro. Yep. I was I was going to ask how how did it affect your bowels? Yeah, really not good. And even the medication for maintenance still not good. And if I hadn't had, I would have been miserable even more than I was without the colostomy because at least I could just curl up and eat. Yeah, and just change a bag when yeah, you needed to. And how's your your mobility? At the moment, good. First thing in the morning, I'm like a little old lady. Now I don't need my little walker. For the first couple of months after I had the femoral nail, I had my walker because nothing is disheartening as an old man overtaking you on his walker when you walk into the hospital with your walker. <laughs> <laughs> and how has Annie and Jason cope with everything? Yeah, no, really good. So they've been so supportive, excellent. When I first went into hospital, made the decision to tell her I had a broken hip and that's why I was in hospital because it took nearly a week to actually get a confirmed diagnosis that this was, because there was a lot of, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. I'm like, I'm not telling her, it could be this, it could be that. Until we know it is what it is didn't tell her thing and then we told her and she looked at us and went well so I'm still gonna have mum yes and I'm still gonna have dad yes and I'm still gonna have technology yes (laughs) and I'm still gonna have food yes oh isn't that incredible I've got nothing to worry about she said but she said but your life's not so great (laughs) oh dear I don't know what to say (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was just like, we're just like, so I think she's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've spoken about this. With your voice, how has it affected your voice? Um, just many, many surgeries. And, of course, esophagus surgeries and heart surgeries that go anywhere near that area. My left vocal cord is completely paralysed. Really? So it comes, my voice can't come and go. I didn't really realise how paralysed until I went to a ear, nose and throat surgeon for something. And, of course, they do their little camera up your nose and down. And he's like, see this, see that? Oh, that vocal cord doesn't do a single thing. That's interesting. And, of 
course, you know, they're being interesting to doctors is not good. <laughs> and I'm like, can you do anything about it? He goes, he said, there's surgeries you can do, but he said they're not very successful. They're quite traumatic to actually do. So he goes, I very rarely would suggest doing anything to anyone. And after everything you've gone through, if, to do a voluntary surgery is not really. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Do what we need. <laughs> and how are you now, Emma? I'm good. I'm still not back at work because of the stem cell transplant. I have to be totally revaccinated. So I've had one lot in December and the next lot I had last week. And now I've got another lot to have in June. And this isn't even the COVID vaccination. So I've had three of those. But because I work in hospital, the HR people have to be vaccinated to work in hospitals. Yeah. And not just your COVID. Mm. This is everything. So once I've finished a lot in June, I can return to the hospital. I'm trying to get something done so I can work from home. But that's just been a battle. You must be so looking forward to getting back to work. Uh, Definitely. And uh, sitting at home all day is not good for the mind. And I need for me to be able to work more for me than any money you get from it anyway. Yeah, psychologically. Psychologically, I need to work. I'm not quite sure if I'll be able to work with patients anymore because of my immune system and because there's lesions in my back, so I don't know how safe that'll be. Probably less of a concern if I was still working at a kids' hospital, but working with adults is hard. But there's plenty of other things I can do in my department that doesn't involve the patients. Oh, that's great. So the last part of your It's About Us story is called It's About Hopes and Dreams. So would would you like to finish up with reading that? Sure. Looking at the future. I hope to stay healthy enough to enjoy my life and many more fun adventures with my family. I look forward to spending more quality time with my husband. I look forward to seeing my daughter grow up into a successful adult I know she will be. I would also like to use all the experience I have with my health journey over the years to help others. I'm just not sure how I can do this. It's been one heck of a ride but it's made me appreciate how lucky I am. I have a great secure job that I have been able to keep with all these medical adventures. I have good friends who have been so supportive, but mostly I have the greatest family, both the one I was born into and the one I have created. May I have many more years of enjoyment with them all. That's amazing. And at the end of your story, you've got a quote, make the most of every moment the good the bad and the beautiful yes well all i can say is that you want to use your experience to help others anyone who listens to this podcast will be absolutely inspired by your courage your strength your attitude more than anything else i think that's just amazes me that you can be so positive with everything you've gone through there were days that i wasn't feeling real positive but i've got to keep going i've got to keep going for my daughter i've got to keep going for my husband 
sent to my psychologist. So that's the one thing with this cancer journey. Going through the public system, I've had access to psychologists, physios, the works, anything needed. And I said to him, I think my dog's going to need you when I go back to work. I don't think she's going to cope very well with me going to work. <laughs> because she just follows me everywhere. Oh, it must give you a lot of comfort, though. She does. So, Emma, it's been an incredible experience for me to listen to your story. And I know it's going to have such an impact on everybody who listens to it as well. And especially for the parents of young IARM kids who are just starting off their journey. And what you've proved is that you can get through school, you can go to university, you can work, you can travel, you can have a family. You've made all your dreams come true in that respect. Yes. So thanks so much for joining us, Emma. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.